Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can gather together on this day in this place. Lord, we thank you for Gethsemane Church and their gracious hospitality to us. Lord, we praise you for this building and for the generations that have been taught by your word that have gone before us. Lord, we ask that as we look at this text today, you would continue to build us this, this year, Heavenly Father, as we start off our fellowships, our Sunday school, our classes, confirmation classes, all that's beginning this week. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be pervasive, enlivening us. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, um, as I said, um, I would change the um, I changed the Romans passage, and we didn't read it, and we didn't do that today because, um, as I was preparing the text, I realized that I had misinterpreted something in Romans, and that actually reading that text from Romans 14 would not be helpful in explaining uh, what's going on in 1 Corinthians today. So, um, research does matter, doesn't it? And when we're pursuing the word of truth in God's word, we can never be too careful. Um, I have to be honest with you, I've always struggled with this passage from Corinthians, because it has always seemed to me like an excuse for the weak to shackle the strong. And, um, you know, yes, that says something about me and my sinful nature, but, and I admit to that and confess it, but it also says that oftentimes this text in 1 Corinthians is confused, confused by people who think that it means that if someone's offended, we can't do something in our Christian faith. That's not what's being said here. Hear me on that. We're going to dig into it because there's lots of parallels here. But the main point of this text is this. Verse 1, it's found in, knowledge puffs up, but love builds. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds. Or as the New American Standard Bible version translation puts it, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There's definitely a need to look at this passage in the church. Because we have to look at what Paul's talking about when he talks about knowledge. We also have to look about what he means when he talks about love. Because in English, we talk about love and we just kind of mean kindness and being nice to one another. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about love as defined in the classical sense, meaning wanting the best for that other person. And you see, it all comes down to priority. Wanting the best for the other person, for Paul, and presumably for us, means wanting them, the Corinthians, and us today, to know and love Jesus as much as we possibly can. To know and love Jesus as much as we possibly can in the Holy Spirit. Notice, he actually himself explains what's going on when he talks about knowledge and love at the end of the passage. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a relatively small passage as we continue our series. 
And we're beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8, which reads, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But now, again, looking at your Bibles, look at verse 11. If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, I'm sorry, I started with my footnote. It starts here, verse 11. And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So do you see sandwiching this passage is St. Paul saying that to love your brother is not to destroy his faith. To love your sister is not to destroy her faith. And therefore, everything we do as Christians needs to be subject to helping our brother or our sister seeing Jesus. That's what St. Paul means by love here. You see, knowledge that's not tempered by love creates arrogance. And arrogance causes sin. And sin harms the weak. So he's talking particularly about people that are being arrogant with no, um, no uh, uh, concern for their brother or sister in the faith. People that are being arrogant in their learning and in their knowledge that it's only that that drives them. Now, it might seem to you and I that you know, a passage talking about food Sacrifice to idols has nothing to do with our life today. But friends, I think there's lots of parallels here that are easily drawn out of the larger context of what's going on, the, the larger point, rather, of what's going on. So let's dig in. What's going on here with food sacrificed to idols? What does it have to do with knowledge and arrogance versus love? and building up. The evidence in this passage that Paul is, the evidence is here in this passage that Paul is not just dealing with knowledge generally, right? To know is a good thing. To know is a good thing. But there's a special kind of knowledge that he's chastising here. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul explains what the knowledge is with the previous verse, verse six. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So, let me ask you, is that is that verse, verse 6, bad knowledge? That through Christ all things exist? Is that what Paul's saying? No. What Paul's saying here is that the Corinthians are misapplying things with, due to their lack of love. You see, the knowledge of the incomparableness to God, of God, is correct. Look, that knowledge is just the first commandment. We said them today. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. 
what point is Paul making here to the Corinthian people? That they're a pagan city. And he's saying, no, God, the true God, the one God, is above all these other gods. He's incomparable to them. He is so different from them by his very nature because he is the God of all goodness, all power, all love. It's monotheism, which for us, duh, right? I mean, we don't struggle with this, right? We don't have, you know, God, the God to Zeus or the, the God to Athena down the road, right? But the Corinthian Christians got that intellectually, but they didn't get it in their heart. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Dealing with the love that's found in the heart of the Christian, or is not found in the love of these who he is correcting. You see, having the love of one God for the Christian is not just knowing about God. Lots of people know about God. It's not even just believing that Jesus existed. Lots of people believe that Jesus existed. But it's putting your entire trust and faith in Jesus. It's about going all in, to use a poker term, with Jesus. Not hedging your bets with other things. And the Corinthians don't get this. They've lost sight of this. They know that Jesus is unique, but they're not living like it. Why? Well, let's continue on with the passage. Because the Corinthians becoming Christians, some of them, are going against the grain. The church in Corinth is going against everything that they were taught. So if you were a good Corinthian lad or lass, son or daughter, you would be brought up going to these many feasts to these gods. You'd go down to the temple of Hera at the end of the uh, marketplace and you'd have a dinner there. Or you'd go down to the temple of Apollo and you'd celebrate that feast. That was just part of your culture. That's just part of what you did. You, you did that because you were honoring these gods with the hope of many different things. Having children, having a good crop, being protected. And what Paul is saying here is that for the Christian, there's no place for that. Do you see the cultural confrontation that's happening here? He's really stirring up the pot. There was a big problem in Corinth because not only were these festivals at the temple, but also these were the places where business went on. So, you know, take your church, combine it with your Rotary Club, and you've got the idea of what's going on in these temples. Or take your, your church, combine it with the, you know, the, the Junior League or whatever club, whatever business club, whatever networking uh, thing that you're a part of. The two were tied together. And that you can see how this would be a real problem for those Corinthians who were up and coming. And so there was a split opinion in the church. 
Some people said, yeah, go ahead. Go to the temple, network, you know, eat the meal, because idols don't matter. We all know that idols aren't true. But there was another element of the Corinthian church that said, no, you can't do that because it makes you seem like you're not a Christian. It makes you seem like your loyalty is divided. How can you be a Christian and then go eat the meal in celebration of Apollo? You see, that's what he's dealing with here. Rome, like Corinth, was famous for its temples, and so this isn't just going on in Corinth, it's going on in Rome too, it's going on all over the Roman Empire. So what's the problem with eating meat that's sacrificed to idols if idols aren't real for the Christian, right? You see the point of the one side. Well, Paul says that the problem is that you're hurting the weaker brother. You're hurting the person whose conscience cannot take the sight of you eating in the temple. Paul uses the word um, sunedesis. Sunedesis. It's translated conscience in English. It's actually the first time that the word's used in the New Testament um, is here in Corinthians. But the problem with translating it conscience is it doesn't quite get the idea of what Paul's going for. According to commentator Dr. Gordon Fee, the closest English equivalent we have to the Greek word here is not conscience, but moral consciousness. Moral consciousness. Now, I understand it it seems like I'm splitting hairs here, but there's a difference. Because conscience, when I say conscience, you probably think Jiminy Cricket, right? And always let your conscience be your guide, right? You probably think that. We we grew up with that. We've all probably all seen that. But What Paul is talking about here is moral consciousness. Consciousness. So it's a problem because the the weak person seeing the other person eating in the temple is emotionally and spiritually disturbed by that. It's scandalous to him. Again, Gordon Fee goes on to say, there's a dissonance between their heads and their hearts with this idea of moral consciousness. That they know, on one hand, that there is one Lord in Jesus, and yet, they grew up going to temple. What the heck are these people doing over here? Going to these temples that are supposed to be Christians. So Paul's concerned not just with that turmoil that's going on in the weaker brother's heart, but he's actually concerned with the salvation of the weaker brother. Look at the text carefully. This is chapter 8, again, verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The New American Standard Version translates this word that the ESV lists as destroyed as ruined. It can also be translated defiled. This seems really strong. What could possibly happen to the believer that's weaker? Well, why doesn't he just get over himself? Right? 
Well, yeah, they, they, they eat at the temple. Fine, whatever. Why is Paul so concerned here? Because he's worried that the weaker brother will slip into apostasy. You see, it's all lies in that word destroyed. What can possibly destroy a Christian? Slipping into apostasy, walking away from the faith, going back to serving the gods of this world. Do you see that in the text? So Paul's not merely talking about being offended here or even having a little emotional turmoil in your heart because of what your brother's doing in the church. Paul's talking about something much more serious that you and your scandalizing scandalizing your brother in his faith to the point that he might walk away from the faith, to the point that he might leave the church, to the point that he might fall into apostasy. That's a very serious business. When you look at it that way, is it really a big deal that you not go to that temple dinner? If it's you going to the temple dinner, asserting your right in Christ to do what you want to do versus your brother falling away from the faith because you're doing that? If that's the result, is it worth you going to the temple and asserting your right to do that? Do you see what Paul's saying here? Of course not, no, because that's not loving your brother. That's not loving your neighbor in the faith. This is serious stuff that Paul's dealing with. Ultimately, the Corinthians think their weaker brother just needs to suck it up. But Paul says no. You who think you have knowledge need to be humbled. Putting your insistence on being right ahead of your brother's salvation is a sin. St. Chrysostom, the third century bishop and preacher, writes on this passage, and he says this, There are two things which deprive you of any excuse in this mischief. The first is that he, your brother, is weak. The second is that he's your brother. Christ died for him, and you cannot even lift a finger to help him in the slightest. Don't, by your actions, allow someone for whom Christ died to lose Christ. This is the point. They're, in fact, not being good Christians with their knowledge. In fact, because of their knowledge, they should know better. Because of their knowledge, they should be more responsible. Because of their knowledge, they should be able to better love their brother and discern between what's right and wrong in these situations. So how much is their knowledge worth for Paul? Nada, nothing, because it's not seated in love. And it gets even worse, because notice that the word knowledge here is in quotation marks. That was put in by the translator, but there's lots in the Greek that points to it. In chapter 10, St. Paul's going to go on to tell these arrogant Corinthians that they might think that it's okay that they go down and eat in the temples of the gods, but not only does it scandalize their brother, but it's actually fellowship with a demon. 
in chapter 10, we're going to get to that. But Paul says, you eat, eating of the sacrifices at these temples, you can't have both holy communion and go and eat at these temples. You can't unite yourself to a demon in these temples and then come to the table of our Lord. You have to choose, Corinthians. So this knowledge, the superior attitude that you have of, oh, that's just my weaker brother that can't take it, can't take me going to the temple. That's not even right knowledge. <laughs> you see, they're wrong on top of it. They're wrong on principle on top of it. We can't get too much into that today. We'll come back to it in chapter 10. So in con conclusion, what can we take from this passage out to the world? Well, one of the things that was told to me my first year of seminary remains true. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. As Christians, we have to examine ourselves carefully in what we're reading and consuming and where we're jumping to conclusions that we ought not to jump. Not just literally what we're reading, mind you, but also when it comes to any knowledge, what's being poured into the hopper up here for you throughout the week? Now, it's good to look at all things. It's good to try to seek and find the truth in all things. Knowledge is not bad. That's not what St. Paul's saying. But what St. Paul is here saying is that we have to be discerning as Christians. We have to be discriminating as Christians, between what is true and what's false. What is helpful to us in our faith and our brother or sister in their faith and what's not. We can't get enamored with the world. And sometimes that takes us taking a step back in our own culture, the way we were raised or the, the, the culture that we currently occupy. It, and, and say, wait a minute, now I was taught that, but is that in alignment with God's word? Is that in alignment with what Jesus would have me do? You see, there's all sorts of room for error. We have to be concerned and, and we have to discern what is true knowledge. It's easy today to become siloed into one way of thinking about things, even in our faith. You see it with theologians who fall in love with their theories but you see it in practical Christianity too. We are subject to Jesus Christ, not to ideologies or agendas or even schools of theology. Second, we must guard ourselves. We can know Jesus is the only way to the Father and life and not live like it. We're not permitted to hedge our bets in life. We're not permitted to just have a little bit of Jesus here on Sunday and then go and do what we want. That's not what it means to be a Christ follower. While we're not confronted with gods per se, we are confronted with gods and values of our culture, God-like values in our culture, right? Things that are settled truth for our culture. Aphrodite may, may no longer have a temple down the street, and yet many people still worship her with their eyes and their hearts and their bedrooms. We might not have a temple to Octavia down the street, 
and yet the sister of, the sister of Augustus, and yet we still worship politics, don't we? We still fall into the trap of being an ideologue. We might not have a temple to Hera down the street, and yet how many people have you seen worshiping their families, putting their families above God? Family is a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God, but to put it above God makes it an idol. Whether you carve something out of stone and call it Hera or not. Dr. Stephen Um, senior minister of City Life Church in Boston, puts it well, summarizing this when he says, personal freedom is never simply personal. Personal freedom is never simply personal. Or as St. Paul and Chrysostom point out, if Jesus was willing to suffer and die on the cross for your brother, you ought to be able to be inconvenienced. You ought to be able to be inconvenienced. So note, what's Paul not saying here? He's not saying compromise your faith or your principle. He's not saying don't search out knowledge. What is Paul saying here? He's saying carefully discern what knowledge you consume. Make sure you put things in the right order of precedence. Have your priorities correct as you walk in the faith, not just in learning, but in action. Ask yourself, in doing this, am I going to cause someone to lose his salvation or her salvation? Just see the depth of love for St. Paul, for, his, for God's people in this passage. He longs, friends, for you and I to love each other just as Jesus loves us. For he gave himself for us to be our bread and our blood, that we might consume him, that we might live in him, that we might die and rise with him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.